I invite you to turn with me in your Bible tonight to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, as we come to the Lord's table tonight, we're going to be looking at verses 45 uh, through 50, specifically looking at what is called the fourth word from the cross, Jesus crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's give our attention to God's word tonight, Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, 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 lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them ran, at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, thank you for Matthew and for your Holy Spirit that inspired him to write these words, this true account of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, give us now eyes to see the wonder of what took place there. And uh, Lord, speak to us in our heart, in our time, in our life tonight, uh, as, we, as we see the wonder of our substitute, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for our sin. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, if you were here, we uh, began our study in the book of Leviticus by looking at uh, the idea of burnt offerings and, and um, our need for a substitute. Uh, our need for someone to die in our place if we are to have entrance into the presence of the holiness of God. We, we cannot be atoned for our sin apart from a substitute. And uh, we mentioned this morning that one of the benefits of the sacrificial system is that it is a very vivid portrayal of both um, what our sin deserves and what atonement costs. Uh, you see it, death, right there in front of you, at your hands. Uh, it's, a, it's a very gripping, a graphic reminder, a visual reminder of what our sin deserves and what atonement cross, costs. Well, tonight we have um, another visual reminder, uh, not nearly as graphic or, or uh, bloody uh, because the blood has been shed once and for all. And yet uh, God gives us the Lord's table to be a visual reminder of exactly the same things, uh, a visual reminder of what our sin deserves and what atonement costs. And so tonight as we come to the Lord's table, I uh, want to just look at the suffering of our Lord Jesus, our substitute. And, and I think the fourth word from the cross uh, maybe captures the depth of his suffering as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we're going to just look through um, these, this uh, experience of our Lord Jesus, first just looking at the event and then the experience and then what it tells us. Um, the event itself, uh, when Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? That word forsaken is a, it's a bleak, awful, terrible word. Uh, there are utterly no good connotations that go with the word forsaken. Uh, Jesus does not just feel alone or abandoned. Uh, he has the experience of being rejected, disowned, discarded, and in some sense betrayed by his father. Uh, it is the deepest level of despair. 
Um, those who have experienced uh, something traumatic like a divorce have some sense of the devastation of betrayal, of being rejected and cast aside by someone you loved, someone that you had expected to be there with you and to be for you, someone that you've leaned on, you've shared your life with, your, your dreams, your body, your heart. And when that person rejects you, when that person uh, casts you aside, it is... It is just utterly shattering to the human soul. But to be forsaken is, is a level of anguish that goes even deeper. Um, Kenneth West, a Greek scholar, uh, defines the Greek word used here as it's a forsaking of someone in a state of defeat or helplessness in the midst of hostile circumstances. You see, it's, it's not just saying, I don't want to be with you any longer, but it's this... Um, exactly in the moment of greatest need, that's when you're rejected. In the time of your greatest weakness, when you're in the greatest danger, when your life is about to be devoured by the uh, oncoming enemy, to be abandoned and forsaken then. That's what Jesus experiences. If uh, Boys and girls, if you imagine that you're uh, maybe taking a walk across a, a, a very tall bridge and you may slip on the ice and uh, you slide off the bridge and you're hanging on by your fingers and, and if, if you drop, you're going to die and your friend, uh, you're calling out desperately for your friend and your friend notices you there and uh, shrugs their shoulders and, and just walks on. Uh, that's what Jesus is experiencing, that sort of betrayal, that sort of abandonment in the moment of his greatest need. And that is evidence, this being forsaken, it's evidence by nature. Matthew tells us that about the, ninth, the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. The sixth hour, of course, is noontime. So Jesus has been on the cross since nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, for three hours, the nails have been tearing at his sinless flesh. His muscles are screaming for relief. And now at, the, at, at high noon... When the sun should be at its brightest, its zenith, it is dark as night. And the question, of course, that everyone would be asking at the cross is, hey, what, what does this darkness mean? Those who would have some sense of the Old Testament Scriptures, the Jews around, would, would sense that darkness means judgment. A darkness in the Old Testament is associated with divine wrath. Amos 5.20, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, pitch dark, without a ray of brightness, when God comes to judge, it is a day of darkness. Because, you see, God is light, and when God is present in favor and grace, then His light is shining. But the darkness of these hours is terrifying evidence of God's absence, at least the absence of His favor and kindness, and the presence of His wrath. Jesus in Matthew 8, verse 12, explains that hell is a place of outer darkness. Outer darkness. Where there's no light, no favor, no grace at all. Only, only wrath, only judgment and condemnation. Well, that darkness, you see, has now fallen on Christ. The, he has not permitted the light of God's face. He's forsaken. He's forsaken under the wrath and judgment of God. And he's under the curse of God. Darkness signifies a curse. Creation is testifying that the Son is being condemned. Galatians 3.13, Paul um, tells us that Christ became a curse for us. 
Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. That, that curse is a, is a covenantal curse. If you remember when God made covenant with the Israelites and, and uh, He called them to obey and He promised blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. It's very similar to the, in the Garden of Eden where God promises blessings to Adam if they will obey. But if, if they sin, the day you eat of it, you shall die. That's a curse. Well, Jesus is being Cursed, covenantally cursed. He's receiving the penalty, the just penalty for lawbreaking. I remember R.C. Sproul once explaining what it means for Christ to be cursed by contrasting it with the blessing, the ironic blessing, benediction that we uh, use every Sunday from Numbers chapter 6. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Wonderful words. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you His peace. That is the ultimate blessing from God, for God to be present, for God to be shining His face upon you, for God to give you His grace and His peace. It's the ultimate blessing we can receive from God. There's not a greater blessing to receive. Well, to be cursed, you, you see, is all of those things just turned on their head. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord turn His back upon you and and condemn you. May the Lord cause you to walk in darkness with nothing but despair. May the Lord give you His wrath. Jesus is cursed for us, covenantally placed under the judgment and condemnation of God. That is what the darkness signifies. That's what's happening to Jesus. And his, the reality of his forsakenness is evidenced then in his cry. Matthew says, he cried out with a loud voice. This is, this is not a whimper. These words are, are, are wrenched from his, his breaking heart, you could say, Matthew, to impress uh, what that experience was like. He gives us the words verbatim as Jesus spoke them in the Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every Jewish uh, member in the audience would know that the the cry comes from Psalm 22. We're not sure when David wrote Psalm 22. It's very possible that he wrote it when he's being uh, hunted down by Saul. And uh, David, at those times, would experience a sense of being rejected and abandoned by God. But Psalm 22 is primarily prophecy. The Holy Spirit inspires David to, pro- to write a prophetic poem. Because the things that happened in Psalm 22, we don't have any really evidence of these things happening to David. And yet they happen exactly and specifically to Christ. Verse 22, verse, uh, Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Well, that's exactly what the enemies of Christ were saying. That's what the chief priests uh, and the leaders were saying. Matthew chapter 27, verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. It's exactly the way they mocked Christ. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lot from my clothing. Well, that didn't happen to David. It happened to Jesus. Jesus is living the words 
of David as David never did. And, and now in, in the moment of, of his greatest darkness and greatest dread, the words of the psalm fall from the mouth they were in, intended for. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. You see, Jesus was the author of that verse, both in prophecy and now in fulfillment. He's living the things that he had prophesied would come true. But whereas David was rescued from whatever trials David experienced, Jesus was not. There was no rescue for Christ. He was forsaken. What was that experience of forsakenness like? Well, he's forsaken physically, isn't he? The crucifixion is a profoundly physical event. It's about cold iron nails and torn flesh, exposed nerves, ripped cartilage. The body of Christ is being rent, suffering abandonment. From his head crowned with thorns, his beaten, bloody face, his lacerated back, his pierced hands and feet, Christ's body is sacrificed viscerally, physically, truly. His body is being forsaken and given over to destruction. But, but the most painful is certainly the relational forsakenness. You see, Jesus knew he came to die. That was not a surprise to him. He continually told his disciples, for this reason, I have come not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew why he was here. And as that time grew near, we see that Jesus' soul was beginning to become increasingly weighed down by the reality of what must take place. And as he came, as he approached the time of the cross, he leaned heavily on his Father. In John chapter 12, 27, we read Jesus saying, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this reason I came to this hour. We know that from the Gospel of Luke that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and, 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 and crying, Lord, if it, if, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And he's sweating drops of blood in his anguish, in, his, in the agony of his soul. We're told that the Father cared for him by sending angels to minister to him. Jesus was not forsaken then. And Jesus had expressed confidence in this, that even though all the, uh, the disciples he knew would desert him, they would abandon him, but Jesus uh, said that his Father would be with him. John 16, 32, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you, the disciples, will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. That was his comfort. But now on the cross, as the darkness descends, as Jesus enters into the fullness now of the hour for which he came, the Father is not with him. This is the experience of forsakenness. To expect help, you see, from the one that you most depend upon and, and find precisely in the moment of your greatest need that your helper is not there. In fact, you're forsaken abandoned, betrayed. His disciples have deserted him and the Father has forsaken him. There's no voice, no ministering angel, no comfort given, no fellowship. The Father has turned his face away and Jesus is crushed in his soul. Which is why he says, my God, my God, why 
It's very interesting that he says, my God, my God. It's the only place in the Bible that Jesus ever refers to the Father that way. Every other time, it's my Father. My Father. But somehow in the, in the crisis, in the, in the anguish of the moment, he cannot say, my Father. It's my God. My God. You see, he's experiencing a hell so deep, a judgment so profound, an alienation so severe that that, that sense of fellowship, communion that, that he's known with the Father from the beginning is not there. And out of the abyss of his damnation, he can only utter, my God, my God, why? Why? The why questions are the hardest to answer, aren't they? The what, when, and where questions can be answered easily by encyclopedias. The how questions can be answered by engineers or scientists. It's the why questions that are the most difficult. In the end, they are known only to God. Why is Jesus forsaken? That's the question Jesus asked on the cross. And humanly speaking, we have to acknowledge that there, there is no reason there's no reason at all that this man should suffer this way. There's, there's nothing in him, nothing about him that deserves this. He is the sinless one. And the reality, the, 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 the robust reality of the pure, sheer innocence of Jesus is what should be so remarkable to us at this moment. Here is the righteous one. The man who, who lived in human flesh and form, who knew all the temptations that we face. And yet for 33 years of his life, never once, to the slightest degree, sinned. Even though the devil poured his full uh, tempting power upon him in the wilderness when Jesus had been without food for 40 days and nights. He didn't sin. Didn't even consider it. Though all of his life he's tempted with all the subtle demonic seduction possible, Jesus never sinned. When he, he was reviled, did not revile. When he was mocked by wicked men, he did not lose his temper. When they spit in his face and beat him and said, prophesy to us. Who beat you? Who spit at you? He did not condemn them. He did not sin. He submitted to his father. So that the pagan Pilate was forced to publicly declare, this man has done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. So why? Why is the Father forsaking him? The just judge of heaven and earth. Why is he crushing him? And the answer, of course, is because of you. Because of me. Because of our sin. Remember when I said this morning, when you, when you take that bull, that goat, and you bring it to the altar, and you lay your hand on its head, and, and then you slit its throat, you can't deny the fact that this is what your sin deserves. It was your sin that brought the death of the substitute. And you have to face it at the altar. There's no denying it. There's no... There, there's no shine away from it. And that's exactly uh, what we have here in the Lord's table. 
He was pierced for our transgressions. That's, that's the why. He was crushed for our iniquities. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have, have turned to his own way. Every single one of us. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the universal message of the Scripture. Paul says, Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins. Peter says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. You see, it's, it's, it's critical for us to remember that Jesus didn't die a martyr for a cause. He didn't die um, as a revolutionary. He didn't die for his convictions. Jesus died for you, for me, in our place, as our substitute for our sin. Every vile thought, every wicked word, every hateful action, every, every sin of omission and commission, all of it is laid on Jesus. Why? Because the Father loved us and gave His Son so that we could be reconciled to Him. Jesus, when He was with His disciples at the last Passover, said to them, This is My body, which is broken for you. This is My blood, the new covenant which is shed for you for the remission of sin. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget what your sin deserves. Don't forget what atonement costs. And don't forget the freedom and the joy and the forgiveness and the life that it brings. You see, there's wonderful assurance here for sinners that no matter how great our sin because of what Jesus accomplished, because of the overwhelming reality of that event, all that it meant, all that it was, all that took place, sinners can, can flee for refuge there. You don't have to worry about dying with, if you come and embrace that death. You don't have to worry about judgment if you come and let Jesus be your judgment. You don't need to worry about the wrath of God if you're willing to come to Jesus and let the wrath of God fall upon Him. And you never need to question the love of God no matter what you're going through if you're willing to see the love of God for you there and then in the forsaken body and soul of Jesus Christ. This event really does change everything. As Jesus, the sinless, innocent Son of God, the eternal sinless Son of God, was forsaken for you. So you might be reconciled. That you might be received. Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Friends, there's, there's, there's nothing like the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing like the cross of Jesus Christ for your life and your health and your joy and your peace. Nothing like the, the cross of Jesus Christ to transform your life. 
And I would just invite you tonight as we come to the table to ask the Lord to do just that, that the the reality of what Christ did for you, bearing your sin, that that reality would be so crystal clear to you. you, And you would have that, that confidence that you've laid your sin on Jesus by faith, claiming Him as your substitute. And that because Jesus died for you, willingly, because of His love for you, you can confidently live with the smiling benediction of God. The grace and the peace of God is yours in Jesus Christ. Let that truth transform your life. Let's pray as we come to the table. Our Lord Jesus, we now come to the table that you've given to us that we would remember and believe what you endured and experienced in our place for our sin that we might be reconciled to God. Father, I pray that you now would give us faith as we participate in the sacrament, this this means of grace meant to be a tangible, visible, physical reminder to us, assurance to us, that Jesus Christ died for us and by his wounds we've been healed. I pray, Lord, you give us grace to believe it and may this be a transforming power in our life that we might live for him in Jesus' name. Amen.